Welcome to Corona Stories, the place where people can be open and honest about their feelings and experiences of COVID, lockdown and related matters. I'm Christine Padgham and I co-host this podcast with my friend Sylvia. This podcast is not for profit, it will never be for profit and we are interested in hearing people's real views. We never censor and we are interested in all perspectives. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we speak to Val Fraser, an ex-Ofsted inspector and a friend of mine. We started before we had our proper chat with her telling us a bit about her holiday in Costa Rica, where she was at the time of recording. And I've put a little clip in at the start of her description for you to listen to, because it's just lovely. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation too. Her partner gave me a driving lesson on the quad bike. So I've been up and down, (laughs) I've been up and down the coast on the quad bike today. Well, that's lovely. That's not something you do every day, is it? And um, uh, yeah, loads of hummingbirds, the the coast, um, almond trees. um, And I think I said in my message that a neighbour called by and they're still out. And he said he wanted to drop something off for Karen and Ian. And I said, oh, they're not here, but you're very welcome to drop it off. It only turns out this Canadian neighbour is Celine Dion's cousin. (laughs) Really? interesting and he was telling me he said oh when you were out on your quad bike did you see the monkeys well I haven't seen the monkeys yet but apparently they're all wild here and he was also telling me there's only 2,000 red almond trees and there's at least three or four on Karen's particular plot wow oh it really yes. sounds like so a tropical a... paradise <laughs> yeah. how, yeah, do, how think... do we get there I've... <laughs> well, and well, and also, well, and also, well, it's very easy to get here as long as things stay the same. Okay. Nothing. Um, yeah. You know, all I had to do was get um, sufficient travel insurance. Okay. Hmm. Cool. So that's interesting, and a lot of a lot of expat Americans and Canadians. Well, I say a lot. The town is only, I think, about four hundred and fifty, but on this part, but um, there are a few families that have come here, and. Um, um, I'm not entirely sure. Some of them have been here a while, but some of them have obviously certainly fled um, Canada for some of those restrictions. Yeah. It's a very um, relaxed way of life. Um, you know, it's it's just, well, I mean, certainly you can see sort of all of nature's wonder here. Mm. And if you're going to have any serious project work like writing and, and whatever, then I can see... This would be an ideal setting. Yeah. Today is the 22nd of November 2021. I have Sylvia here. Hello. And Val Fraser. Hello, Val. Hello there. Hello, Christine, who I have met, and Sylvia, who I haven't. It's only a matter of time. Yes, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> and Val, you're joining us from the sunny climates of Costa Rica. Yes. And it's be- it's the theme of Corona Stories that brings me here. Yeah. So, um, 
Do you want to start, Val, by telling us a bit about your background and, you know... Yes, 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 of course. So I actually started out as an English teacher in secondary schools in England. But coincidentally enough, I did a teacher exchange as a young teacher and I came to Vancouver Island uh-huh. and I taught in Canada at a high school there for one of the 10 years that I was an English teacher. And then after I did that, I then worked at the University of Nottingham training people to be English teachers. So they came with their degree and then they got trained in teaching and learning to um, be you know, as effective as possible as English teachers. Um, I was also um, a qualified Ofsted inspector of schools in England, uh, England and Wales. And um, I also did some consultancy, which I still do, as a home education advisor. But I did take early retirement from the University of Nottingham in 2020, September 2020. Okay. Okay. So what... that's quite an interesting past. So what kind of brought you into the Corona forums from there? Um, so I've always been interested in health. Um, have two children, 30 and nearly 27. And um, I always looked for sort of like the grandmother's recipes. I never really instantly reached for any of the sort of um, pharmaceutical stuff, unless I had to, of course, and then I did obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how to how to nurture children to be the best versions of themselves physically. As an educationist, I was really interested in how, you know, I could find out about what was happening with younger children, because mine was a specialist in secondary. So having my own children allowed me to observe that. So just a little um, example of that is I'd only ever taught, you know, 11 year olds upwards in terms of reading development there I was teaching beginning reading so it was the opportunity really to kind of see the whole child and knowing what makes children thrive not just in the classroom which was my professional specialism I also knew what made them thrive physically emotionally and socially and as well as intellectually and actually my role as a home education advisor would draw upon all of that because some of the children coming out of school were actually traumatized by the school setting and actually needed to be rebuilt so when the um pandemic started what really um what really fired me up was the fact that it was the children who were having the biggest impact of covid measures it was um yeah, a really quite um, disproportionate load that they were being asked to bear. And my work across all of the sectors I've been involved in allowed me to understand that when a child's child's emotional well-being is inextricably connected to how successful they feel as a learner, how they feel, you know, curious, um, excited, that they're achieving. And I've been around various case conferences where we've been discussing children who sadly, you know, do need some sort of repair. Mm -hmm. And, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists who sit around completely agree with me that actually a child's learning and their emotional well-being are two sides of one coin. And when one goes wrong, the other goes wrong. 
So I could almost predict when we took away um, school and replaced it with online learning that this was incredibly harmful for children. Yeah. And, and what is it, I don't disagree with you, but what is it that you feel in particular about online learning um, affects children? You know, what, what does it not give them? So um, a successful classroom is really one where there's a lot of nonverbal communication. Mm -hmm. And of course, the impact of masks uh, was, was, have implicated that as well. So we can talk about that if you like. That's that's where I, I I've got some good research really. But um, yeah, so I I mean I am a fan of online learning, mm -hmm. mostly for adults. Yeah, I've designed an online learning course. You know, the very first postgraduate certificate of education in this country was designed by me at the turn of the century, oh. and the and the reason um, you know I was a fan of it is because adults like flexibility. Adults have very many competing demands, which means they want to access something they're learning as and when they wish. And it also has the benefit of just all being there so that you can chunk it up yourself and access bits of it. Mm -hmm. But the idea of replacing a, a teacher in a classroom, a, you know, a warm human being and an animate mm -hmm. person in front of children with, an on, with a screen in front, um, A, the child is a solo learner, now, that's not ideal circumstances for a child to be learning. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that the teacher is removed so that she cannot or he cannot perambulate the classroom, checking who's, who's learning, who's got misconceptions, just, just, it just becomes two-dimensional. Yeah. It doesn't benefit children at all. It does benefit adults, some adults, not all, but it does benefit those. But you're removing the dynamic between a teacher and a child. And you're also removing the child from a very important part of learning, which is collaborative learning with their peers. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I've always felt that a very important part of the school environment is actual social interaction and learning how to interact with your peers. And you just can't replicate that at home. No. And... Of course, we're also assuming um, that there is 100% technology inclusion, which there isn't. Yeah, yeah. And we're also assuming that where there are a number of children in a household, that there's an electronic device for every child. So even though the model itself is poor quality teaching and learning, even mm. though it is, even, it's even worse than that for some families. And then we've got to layer on for the most disadvantaged families, there were often parents struggling to work. You know, not everyone was able to be flexible with their work, for example. And so, you know, you had parents trying to multitask, teach their children at home or at least supervise it. Mm -hmm. So it was, you know, it was just a, a recipe for, not disaster, but a recipe for very poor quality teaching and learning for a child to feel that they didn't get the recognition and they, they weren't able to follow up their own learning curiosity. Yeah. And, you know, another aspect, I mean, you were talking about the sort of social economic impacts on access to technology and the internet. But, I mean, for us, where we live, we're quite rural 
And so actually the internet can be a bit of a liability at the best of times. It yeah. can drop out at the drop of a hat. Um, and, you know, so a lot of children in rural, it might not even be a money issue as such. It's just actually the internet's poor. Yes, yes, and there's 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 all of those. Um, yes, there's a, there's an economic factor. Then there's a technical ac um, aspect to it, and then there is a, a poverty issue. You know, with the parents, mm -hmm. you know, um, trying to to manage those jobs. But there's also a safeguarding issue. Um, you know, if you want to put a child, um, you know, we're all encouraged, aren't we, when we bring up our children around technology to have the parental controls. Yeah. But, you know, when you as a nation decide all children should just now go on to Zoom learning, we can't 100% of the time um, guarantee that those parental controls are on those devices. Yeah. And my role as a home education advisor brought me, sadly, into cases where a lone child in the bedroom on their device has you know with internet access where there are let's say low parental supervision often accessing sites that we wouldn't wish them to be yeah. accessing and i can i can say for absolute sure in my authority i found that there were children who without close supervision well it's, it's a couple of things without close supervision they were accessing material you didn't want them to access they're accessing audiences that you didn't want them to access but you also have to say the social isolation from not being at school made that an inevitability yeah because they they sought approval they sought social approval so they sought, they they received it or researched it wherever they could get it and yeah. it was often in for those children, not, I'm not saying it was a majority, it was a minority of children. But what disappointed me was the children I picked up who had become the victims of older perpetrators on the internet were all known to the schools to have some emotional risk factor. Yeah. But when you shut down as a country, you don't do, you don't do that risk i i actually believe that before we did that we should have done a risk assessment on every child because every one of the ones that i picked up were known to the school either for learning difficulties or for emotional difficulties or for family difficulties yeah you remove the very safe environment of school where they can sort these problems out with their friends where they can chat and they can resolve difficulties or they can say this has happened to me you know, 50% of girls and 30% of teenage boys receive inappropriate social messaging. Yeah. Now, if you're in a school, you can talk about that. But if you're at home, on your own, locked down, yeah. perhaps you don't talk about it, perhaps you yeah. just follow it up. Well, you know, so there was, there was that quite, very dark side as well. Yeah, it's quite interesting you talking about that, Val, because... For us, um, our local authority used Google Classroom and my son's iPad actually wouldn't allow us to access Google Classroom if we had our parental controls on. So we actually had to take off our parental controls so that he could access his schoolwork, which... Oh, so that's, a, that's not just a layer being 
uh, that's a, well, that is a layer being removed, isn't it? That's a safeguarding Absolutely. layer. Absolutely. And yeah. you know, this is something that I went on and on and on and on and on about safeguarding. Back in about April 2020, I started to say, this is not right. Because, and again, I said this in the last podcast, I'll probably say it in another podcast, I'm not supposed to talk about the school because I get a slap on the wrist from my head teacher. So, shout out. But I went to the school and said, nobody is getting in touch with my children. In the first lockdown, nobody was getting in touch. So I was like, how do you know that my children are safe? Because nobody's checking. And I mean, and I, my children were safe, but I thought for all the children that aren't, and the other thing is people's circumstances during those lockdowns were changing so suddenly that families that maybe weren't on the school's radar as being a risk could have become a risk just because parents were like stressed out their heads and lost jobs, lost jobs or you know it was just it was just an absolute safeguarding nightmare and what you're what you're saying there about you know kids learning and the online learning kind of killing off their curiosity that is literally what i saw happening with my two children who are really, really good learners normally, and they just were not interested in doing anything during the lockdowns. It was an absolute battle every single day. And it was because... And the problem... They weren't, yeah, and not, the problem with that... Could be, they're not you know, online children. Is it contaminates... Well, and the problem with that is it contaminates the relationship between parent and child. It absolutely you know, like did. You're suddenly becoming this, this bossy person, and they're kind of thinking, well, you know, why is mummy behaving like that? Well, yeah. it's because you were obliged to, because you're now teacher and parent. Yeah. yeah. And actually, in the first lockdown, it was okay. Like, I just said, look, this is, we are not doing schoolwork because it was just causing massive amounts of fighting and it was horrible. So I was like, right, I'm not doing this. Then in the second lockdown, the school was much less sympathetic to that. They, it was they much were, more prescriptive about what work you had to do, whereas. Yeah. The first lockdown. Yeah. And then obviously the teachers at that point were thinking, oh, crikey, we've had kids off for an awfully long time now. We'd best sort of crack, not crack the whip, but they started to get much more firm about the need for the kids to do the schoolwork. And I just couldn't get my girls to engage at all. It was a nightmare. Well, and, you know, when we thought it was three weeks and actually, you know, it occurred around March the 23rd and whatever, I think... Um, I think all of us would have just said, oh, well, it'll all be over soon. Why, why have we got to do that? But actually, children lost, I think they lost something like 200 days of schooling in total, or at least some yeah. of them did. I know that the key workers' children um, were provided for. But again, that wasn't necessarily with their class well, teacher. It wasn't necessarily you know, with the... Um, I mean, I know, I know a head teacher who said, they weren't actually allowed to do the proper teaching because that would have disenfranchised the ones who had to do it at home. So it was almost like, well, you're just setting up a childminding service here. Yeah, I mean, I I have a friend who's a doctor who basically said that although her daughters were allowed to go into school, they seemed to be spending every day doing pictures of rainbows and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Meanwhile, their contemporaries whose parents were at home were being hothoused 
and uh, they were probably being oh. following, you know, well behind. Um, yes. You know, it, it definitely has brought out a lot of inequalities for children. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Oh, there were, dif- there were different, yeah. There were differentiated outcomes for children, mm-hmm. dependent on, um, really, parental resources in that way. And, but even, even the ones who probably had a whole raft of, you know, online tutors were still getting a poor quality teaching and learning service. So as a, as a former Ofsted inspector and as, someone, as a teacher educator, um, we were obliged with criteria to either assess a beginning teacher um, uh, performance and um, quali- qualities in order to get accredited as a teacher, or as an Ofsted inspector, then I was having to judge the the performance of the teaching and learning I was witnessing in any in any classroom as a contributing uh, set of evidence. What I can tell you for absolute definite is if children are not given the opportunity to talk in the classroom, then every lesson would have failed an Ofsted inspection. Which means for a whole year, virtually, because I'm going to come on to masks, they weren't able to talk when they were masked. It was, you know, yes, it was better that they were in school than online. But when they went to be back in school, they had another um, inhibition, which didn't allow them to have a voice in the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. And... Um, we're coming on to the project I did with Karen and why I'm in Costa Rica now because we we had this friendship. But I was, I think what what propelled me to want to join Heart was in the March when we were going to open up again of this year, you know, and children were going to be allowed back, but they all had to be masked. Because I know a lot of teachers and I know a lot of teachers, former students of mine, as well as um fellow professionals, I was picking up a lot on social media where it was complaints about why they're allowing children back. You know, um, what, uh, it's, it, you know classrooms are dangerous places. Oh why, why are we having all this risk? Yeah. Um, fancy thinking, you know, that this is going to, to work. And I just got so cross with the whole of the education profession, it seemed. We're thinking... Do you not think it's children's turn now? They've just had, you know, I mean, we have to remind ourselves how long this has been going on, really. But they have had a year of where they have been disconnected from their futures. And I'm actually picking up, you know, I was travelling around Mexico to Costa Rica and bumped into a graduate, very lovely um, English woman, who's 23, got a really good degree from Exeter and hasn't been able to get on a professional ladder. And there's lots of them. One of my friend's children is in that position. And, and as you go further down, then the, you know, if you go down the age range, then the disconnect is going to be even more formative. Because, um, you know, if you're five and you've lost a year of school, you've lost 20%. Yeah. If you're, you know, you've still yeah. at 23, you have at least got an, um, you've got something banked, haven't you? You've, you've yeah. probably formed a couple of relationships or a lasting friendships. You've probably had a social, you've probably already identified as a successful learner. 
But as you go down the ages, they haven't identified as successful. They haven't had the triumphs, the victories. You know, they haven't had the star of the week, you know, such that they feel puffed up. They actually have been dealt a really big disservice, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to say a little bit about masks. And this is... This is not rocket science. This is not. I mean, I'm not. I haven't got access to secret educational research. Every teacher knows that if a child is not talking in class, then they're not properly learning. And I, I made it my life's work to make sure that anyone who came out of my educational stables knew how to organize a classroom such that there was it was they, the children felt it was a safe environment to risk their voice even if they were to get it wrong yeah and so we talk all about organizing groups about what you do about the child who never wants to talk how it's your job not the child's job it's your job to make the environment safe enough for those children who shy to speak out because if And I used to say to them, if by Christmas you haven't had every single child in your class speaking, hearing their voice, then you haven't empowered them. Mm -hmm. You cannot, there's zero tolerance for the fact that you can just write off a child because they happen to be shy. No, your job is to get them talking. For me, that is, you can see a successful classroom. From 50 paces, I can see a successful classroom because I can see all these groups and children talking. Why do they need to talk? Why can't they just listen? Well, if that was the model of learning, then I would know every single thing that an IT helpline has ever told me over the phone. And I can assure you I do not. Because the model of learning means you have to process it using your own language. You have to verbalise it. You have to test it out with somebody else. It isn't just teaching and learning. And it isn't just knowledge. What you're trying to get to is understanding. And understanding means that child not only knows it and can recall it, but they can apply it in a flexible way when the, when the context changes. And how can they do that if they don't have a voice? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes even more, even deeper than that, Val, because, you know, the classrooms were fundamentally changed as well. You know, excess items were stripped out seating was changed so that people could socially distance you know that kind of very archaic form of teaching where people would sit at single desks in rows so that they couldn't communicate were replaced with more group setups and that was all taken away so that they could socially distance so it was like education really went backwards well yes you just described the transmission model of learning which isn't learning The transmission model of teaching and learning is you're an empty vessel and I just fill you up. And is that not is that not what we want these days? Like is that not what the state is doing to us all? You're an empty vessel. We'll just fill you up. Yes. Yeah. Well you've um you know, you've you've hit on something which I've been observing um with the national curriculum over thirty years really. Yeah. Um because as soon as we've had the national curriculum for just over 30 years and when it first came out in his first draft there wasn't very much in my subject of English I would want to um, complain about 
there was a lot of criticality. There was a lot of um, contemporary culture that you could use so mm -hmm. that children could become informed and critical readers. They could become, they, 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 they could use a model of social constructivism to see how society worked, where there were inequalities, where they could be misled. You know, you actually used a piece of um, a text in my subject in order to see where the bias was, where the um, false claims might be. I looked, I had to look at the national curriculum for my subject quite recently, and I saw one reference to criticality, and it was with respect to English across the curriculum, which means, you know, they're not, the emphasis is no longer on being critical readers and thinkers. Yeah, I mean, it, it has very much across the board been, and it's been coming at us for a long time. There's only one acceptable school of thought, you yeah. know, and don't try and think otherwise. Don't try and critique something and take an alternative position. Um, and even in science, you know, the, one of the things you do in science is try to prove the opposite to prove your theory. Um, and it, it yes. just seems like yes, that's you, need to, you need debate and discussion. Well, you can. Yeah. And well, yeah. yeah, I was going to say about, you know, when you described how the classroom was shaped and changed mm -hmm. during the when the children returned. Um, you have to make a classroom as safe as possible for children to risk their voice, to risk uh, hypothesizing, um, to um, feel that they want to be curious and excited about their learning. What we did is we replace that environment, which I call conducive to learning and to understanding, with a, with a classroom that resembled fear. There were just symbols and emblems. You know, we know that classroom display is a very important message for children. So if they can mm -hmm. see their work up on the wall, if they can see um, exciting and motivating inspirational quotes around the classroom about science or any aspect of the curriculum that they happen to be in, then we know that contributes a great deal to making that classroom more conducive to learning. But what did we do? We just had all these fear messages. Yeah. And you can't learn when you're frightened. A frightened, anxious child does not learn. It's been a really, really grim time and actually educationally it doesn't seem to have changed much. Um, you know, we, we still have things like not being allowed proper sports days with families being yeah. allowed to attend, uh, not having Christmas shows, all the acting, um, you know, these important aspects of education have just been totally ripped from us and they're the bits that the children enjoy most they're the bits which have a washback effect on the curriculum and there's good research to say that yeah the richer the extra curricula what do you mean by the richer the extra curricula sorry what do you mean by washback well, the richer the extracurricular life of a child, where they're given opportunities to choose, the only bit of the curriculum they really choose until they get to choose their exams subjects is what they do after school, if there are clubs, if there are sporting activities. 
Where, do, where does the child who's not necessarily academic get to showcase their skills? Well, it's in the extracurriculum activities that go on. So that is dominated by auto personal autonomy and choice, mm -hmm. which research tells us that the children's self-esteem about themselves and about learning in general will mean they're much more likely to attain higher levels of success in the classroom because they they kind of generalize it to the school environment mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so so that's all gone yeah i mean right now we've just been informed that we're not going to have christmas shows uh, this year well they're doing them online so we can all watch online and i just feel like the you know the there's no acknowledgement of the damage that that does to children, this sort of decision. What do you think about that? Like, you know, people say, oh, they kind of like, what are you on about? It doesn't matter. They're doing the Christmas show. They're just doing it online. It's like... But there's no audience feedback. There's yeah. no, you know, loud applause. And there's no adrenaline surge, you know, like, you know, from which you grow. Yeah. You know, I can remember my own children, you know, having that performance anxiety before and then doing really well. And then, you know, metaphorically appearing a foot taller because they pulled it off. Yeah. Well, you don't get you don't get that when it's not a live performance. But I guess also the other thing I want to say is what is the rationale for all of that? What is give me the rationale for why these well, Christmas end of shows and things the rationale... need to be the rationale, Val, is that we need to limit and reduce contacts as much as possible. And it doesn't matter that people are mingling outside the school in pubs and clubs and stuff. They're dancing and jigging and not wearing masks and drinking and going to theatre and going to sports events. Doesn't That doesn't matter because the school, there's people who are required to be at the school statutorily as part of their work. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, you you know, you know that um, whilst I can call myself a doctor, I'm not a medical doctor. So people like me, so I'm saying we need to make this classroom environment look as safe as possible for children to learn. Mm -hmm. Now, their safety concerns come from a different trajectory, don't they? They're coming from what they are reading about science. But, you know, so I need... So you and I, Christine... Um, will go to the experts that we know. And the experts that we know, with very reliable data, and it's actually going to be mainstream data, I think, very soon, yeah. will tell everybody that schools were never dangerous places. Teachers were never at more risk because of children. No. You know, Dr. Ross Jones, who's tirelessly working to talk about the impact on children, but also the risk of risk to children and the risk of children in settings. Classrooms, if we look at the data that's provided by those experts, we know that actually it's foolish and it's 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 look it looks like it's over diligence. It looks like due diligence to them. They're kind of saying these people are saying, well, you know, we've got to apply due diligence. No. It's actually over diligence. You're trying to create what you think is a physical environment, which is not necessary at safety levels. 
But instead, what you're doing is you're creating a very emotionally damaging environment yeah. from which your school is the venue and the hotbed for that. Yeah. And that's what I feel because, you know, my girls know that the Christmas show has been cancelled because the school and the council and everybody else thinks that it's too dangerous. So, like, them having a Christmas show would be dangerous for people around them. And they know that it's not dangerous because they're smart girls and they're able also, to work things out. it doesn't accord with everyday life they no. see that people are going back to the cinema yeah. they see that people are going into restaurants yeah. so they're like well how is our christmas show any different to that and we like our christmas show and we want to do our christmas show and i have to say well sorry because the council says no and that's it well you and sylvia are obviously doing a really good job with your children in terms Thank of you, like Val. soaking up <laughs> well you obviously are because you're obviously soaking up that anxiety for them that's what adults should be doing yeah. you know that's yeah. what i used to used to say to my student teachers, if there's anything to be anxious about in your role, do not transfer that to the children. If your, if your performance as a teacher is being judged on how much they're going to perform at GCSE or whatever exams they're taking, I never want you to ever display that to them because it's not their anxiety to bear. And so if we have a head teacher who's super worried about all of that, then he's just got to be even more skillful at absorbing it. Yeah. 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 Well, my... Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm very proud that my children know that COVID is no risk to them and that they don't need to worry about passing it on to other people and that that's not their responsibility, but they can't actually do it anyway. I, like... Yeah. And my concern is, I mean, my, your children have been impacted negatively and you've reduced that. Every child has been impacted negatively and for, for you and Sylvia's, you've managed to reduce that to a minimal. My concern, my concern is the children who are actually traumatised. I had, I in my role as a home education advisor, I picked up um, a young child um, he was six by the time I picked him up because he couldn't, he didn't, he, he was too frightened to go to school. Okay. Now, the problem was he'd hardly been at school. Very sadly, one of his grandparents died of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, those absolutely outrageous messages that are then health secretary mm. put forward, which was, you know, about saving granny. That went through that little boy who'd hardly started at school. Now, he was too frightened to go to school because he didn't want to kill the other grandparents because he believed he had killed his first grandparent who died. What an emotional burden. Who would ever put well, that on a child? Well, I Matt mean, Hancock did. Yeah, I know he did. But, I mean, <laughs> the ludicrousness of it is just unreal. So I had a little boy who was home educated, whose parents were working with me, mum particularly, to try and get that child back into school. I should say it does have a happy ending, that we did eventually achieve that and we did have a wonderful school who were already full, but we managed to negotiate for them to go over numbers and 
And they also agreed a very, very slow transition where he was only there for a little bit each day. Um, he had one-to-one -one support. There had to be extra resources put in, into place for that. My added dilemma was that he was too frightened to go to school because he believed he could kill his grandparents and he wanted to hold on to the ones he had, was that he was also the witness to some domestic violence between his parents. So the home was not a safe place for him. Now, you can say, well, there'd be very few of those. No, there's not. I don't. I don't. Well, there, there, well, we don't know the impact of what we've done. We will. We will find out in a generation, probably. But I don't even care if he's just one child. That's what that fear messaging from our health secretary. Uh, that's the result it had on that particular little yeah. boy. And collectively, which is yeah. he's not collateral damage, as far as I'm. You know, no child should be collateral damage. No, no. I agree. And the other thing about that is. You know, that emotional impact on him will have an effect on him in future. You know, even although I know yes, you've done yes. fantastic reparatory work there, it still has an effect on him in the future. Well, do we ever want any child ever to believe they were causative in their beloved grandparents' death? That was just such an irresponsible mm -hmm unprofessional and i think that was a resignation issue just actually putting that message out yeah and what also i think we i'm not blaming individuals here but what we need to accept is that collectively we are constantly compounding that message by saying things like we can't have a christmas show because it's telling children you are a risk you're a risk to others and People are well, under, yeah, and we really need this yeah. this podcast to be a companion piece to the wonderful work that Ros Jones has done in yeah. terms of you know paediatrician, retired paediatrician, fifty years of her life, knowing about children's health, and she is and she and her colleagues. I'm not just saying she's not a lone voice. No, she and her respected colleagues are all telling us that children should never have been impacted by the no. pandemic in the way that they were. Yeah, I mean, it's very odd, isn't it? Because previously, you know, in wartime, we had posters that said, keep calm and carry on. Yeah. Because that's what you do in a crisis. You try to show normality mm -hmm. to children. You try to make things seem as normal as possible to, to lessen the load well, yes. And you see, the, the problem was... The fear messaging didn't just get to children, it got to the adults involved, it got to the teachers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we hear in the past of dreadful things happening in school settings and the heroism of teachers in protecting their yeah. children and yeah. putting themselves in the line of danger before the children. Well, unfortunately, this pandemic didn't um, allow for teachers to show that heroism because the fear messaging was also targeting them about, yeah. you know, it's as though the adults were abdicating their responsibility to make sure the children were protected from fear and anxiety. But it was just so, it was such a sort of um, dragnet approach yeah, I think, in terms of scaring everybody. Yeah. I think there are some teacher heroes out there. Oh I yeah, there's plenty of it. teacher heroes. But the problem is they have to keep their heads down 
because they cannot be seen to have gone against the mainstream lines. Um, you know, they're fearful for their jobs and by God, we need them. We need them in their place. Yes, uh, we need, and you know, if those that are questioning this are the ones that we desperately want to keep in the profession because that would suggest they are our critical thinkers and they are the ones that are going to be the best teachers of critical thinking and they're going to be the inspirational ones. You're absolutely right that that is the case. I'm sure there are lots there that we don't know about. We often hear the ones who do the complaining, but if you think about a teacher's role, not only do they have to worry about whether, because classrooms now, can, the doors can be opened by anyone, usually by senior management who are doing their particular patrols. So, and that's become much more common that you no longer think, well, this is my environment and nobody, you know, I, I can exercise, um, you know, the kind of style, the kind of um, tone that I wish, because you do have to be monitored nowadays and you do have what they call the corridor patrols of, you know, the senior management going around and checking and so on. So, you know, you're not likely to be able to say to children, if you did believe it, you can take your masks off. They wouldn't have been able to do that. But equally... Every child in your classroom goes home to their parent to tell them what's happened in school. Mm -hmm. So a lot of teachers, I didn't, ha I didn't have any choice but to comply because, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, were being, they were being monitored institutionally, but they were also being monitored at every family's dinner table and every parent had the same fear messaging given about how their, you know, how the schools were going to keep their children safe. Mm -hmm. So there was absolutely no room for any teacher to exercise their own professional autonomy. Yeah. Although we did have one teacher come on our podcast and she did say she would never ask a child to put their mask on or ask them where their mask was because she wasn't comfortable with that. Um, so children generally would come into the classroom, sanitise their hands and immediately put on their mask. But she certainly would never have enforced it or... And, you know, it was so refreshing to hear that from somebody. Mm -hmm. Oh, I definitely know of people like that. I have some friends who have said they would, you know, that equally they would never do that. They weren't able to reassure the children in the way that they would like to, which is, look, mm -hmm. it's perfectly safe, everyone can take their masks off, and please, can you talk to each other? They couldn't do that, but they certainly never made the child uncomfortable about anything that their parent had, you know, if the parent had said, you don't need to wear a mask, then obviously, you know, you that we had teachers who, um, let's say, flew under the radar on all of those kinds of um, uh, regulations, and... And yeah, let's let's keep them as much as possible. Yeah. But well, we need the other to thing, the thing I'm, go on. Yeah. Well, the other the other thing I'm picking up though is that parents are getting very very fed up with the school environment for their children, mm -hmm. and um, certainly I've I've picked up quite locally from one local authority. There's been a thirty percent increase in parents wanting to home educate to remove them from what is still. An unsatisfactory learning environment yeah. of school. That's a lot, isn't it? Thirty percent. Did you say increase? And a I've no reason increase. to think that is. Yeah. Wow. 
And I've no reason to think that that isn't replicated across the country because we know, you know, that um, there hasn't been particularly... You, know, you, you can't monitor the, the sort of poor quality teaching and learning regionally. It's, it's obviously the whole mess... The whole country has been united in that kind of um, fear messaging. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's home education by design in that parents make an active choice. They think, no, we can do it better here. I don't want them having to, you know, um, have all that going on. And sometimes it's by default because the child is so broken by that environment that mm. they cannot get them into school and then they have to pick up the pieces and try and rebuild their child with a home education programme. Yeah. Well, we've certainly in our... Um... Social, our new social group locally here, we talk a lot about home education. Yeah. You know, no, I don't know yeah. if anybody's actually quite at the point of taking the plunge, but I think if if we did, we certainly know that we would have each other's support and we could... Um, I mean, it is something that we've all, we've all thought about. For example, and this is something which um, I'll be bringing up when I meet my kids teachers soon is like they get news in class but they only get news from one source which is news round bbc and i'm not happy yes. about that yeah you know and it just displays to me an incredible it's like i mean this is scotland wide but you know it's like they're teaching them how to watch the news and how to look up the news and how to think critically about the news apparently while only showing them one news source. I mean, I, is this yeah. some sort of joke? Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't want parents to think that the model of home education was what they had to do when the, we, the schools were closed because the lone child at home, Aye. not interacting, not just not socially interacting, but not, not um, learning collaboratively with other people, with other children of a similar age. Yeah. So where it works best is when parents do join up and where they, you know, the child is able to learn mm. collaboratively alongside another. That is the best form of it because children aren't meant to be, they're not meant to be sort of um, isolated learners, you know, sort of mm. um, yeah. uh, without that opportunity to, you know, you know, the, the pleasure of reading a story to a whole class and then getting to the end. And you've all enjoyed that communal experience. And then just a very open question like, well, what did you think of that? Is something you can't replicate with a child on their own. So, you know, you do, it would be sensible to do that. And I suppose the only other thing I wanted to say is please don't think... That, well, first of all, legally, you don't have to replicate the national curriculum. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're home education, there's no requirement to do that. If I was designing a world-class education, I would not be starting with the the national curriculum. Yeah. So you know, we do want our children to be members of a literate, numerate, technical, technological society. But actually, knowledge is not compartmentalized in the way that a school timetable is. So that, I think that's quite an interesting. Um, concept Val what, what do you think is the sort of basis for a good education what what should we be striving for so I've had a little go at um, 
thinking about, you know, when you make a claim, oh, if I was designing a world-class education, I wouldn't start with the national curriculum. You've, you've got to kind of then say, well, what would you start with? And, um, you know, and I suppose you have to start with some um, criteria. You, uh, you know, you need to... Um, it's just getting dark here in Costa Rica, by the way. It looks beautiful out there. Um, yeah, we're just getting a sunset and there's all these wonderful trees and the shoreline. It, it is lovely. So... Um, I won't be able to... I did actually pen something and put something down. I'm not entirely sure I'd be able to access that right now, but I can remember a lot of it. Um, I think, uh, you know, an education should um, uh, develop a child's curiosity about the world, the people in it, and mm -hmm. how it works. Mm -hmm. I think it should make appropriate steps in an age and stage related way to um, allow them to, be, to, to become members of a literate, numerate and technological society so that they are empowered um, to play to their potential. You know, so we can't, you know, if, if a child is illiterate, then they're just disempowered. So we have to be sensible about that. I think we have to have them as an agent of choice. Uh, so there has to be an element of the curriculum, an element of their learning, I don't mean curriculum, an element of their learning where they are choosing to follow something. Mm -hmm. And the idea that you tick off subjects with that, I mean, so, you know, sometimes I'm advising parents and saying, well, you probably do want to think of the literate bit as being English. You probably do want to think of the numerate bit as being maths. You probably do want to think of the IT bit as the technological bit. But everything else can be thematic because, you know, studying space, you know, isn't just science. It can be art. It can be poetry. You know, it can be whatever you wish it to be. And it can it can be a global it can be a global sort of um, uh, in-depth investigation, which doesn't know subject divide and shouldn't know subject divide because that's not how knowledge exists. You can't say, well, I'm going to stop there because now we're going into history. And the other thing I think is they need to have a sense of time. They need to have a sense of, you know, the past, mm -hmm. the world and its past, the people and its past. They need to have an awareness of um, the current times but they also need to envisage and imagine and be creative about their future yeah. and their role within it. And I guess the other thing I want them to learn is how do they, as a, as a person, identify with their community? So what are all the concentric rings of all the groups? So they are connected up so that they are an individual and they are a member of the family. And they might also be a member of a faith community and they might also be a member of a village or a town or they might be a member of a club. And I'd like them to explore their roles within that, any group setting, really. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I definitely, I definitely have this written down in a, in a way that's a bit more articulate than I'm just telling you. But um, it definitely is about um, health and well-being. How do they... How do they play a role in becoming the very best version of themselves they can be. Mm -hmm. You know, what about good nutrition? What about physical exercise? What about fresh air? What about, um, yeah, create? we want creativity 
intellectual um, development, social, emotional, they've all got to be part of a child's learning. And we've squeezed out almost all of those things. If, if I mean, good teachers don't do the national curriculum, good teachers use the national curriculum and they can feed in creativity, emotional and social development in the ways that I've told you, because they use the, they use the whole class of pupils to do that. But if someone thinks they are doing the national curriculum, then it, it becomes a very dry process and it becomes subject bound and it becomes very limited. Yeah. Mm. I think I think what you're saying about community and sense of self and placement is so important because I think, you know, with social media and things, we have all to a certain extent kind of lost that personal connection with other people. Um, and the pandemic hasn't really helped because communities themselves have been so disrupted. You know, churches haven't met, so your faith community perhaps hasn't been as active as it once was. Village halls have been shut. Groups have not been allowed to meet. And, you know, that's all very, very damaging because I think human sense of happiness also stems from their place in community and the bonds within that. And I think um, what's happened through social media is it's made people feel that they need a lot of things around them to be peaceful. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, we've, we, and we're, we're busy stimulating our children. We're busy moving them around a building, you know, 40 minutes here, 40 minutes there. And, and then we've got, as you say, the social media, which is all about, you know, you can only be lovable if you look in this way, if you have these sorts of friends and if you do these sorts of activities and you wear these sorts of clothes and, and whatever. And of course, we're actually producing a generation of young people who get to find out that it, that isn't true. Mm. And we could really do with starting with young children and saying, you know, what is it that makes me happy? Mm -hmm. And we don't ask those big questions of them anymore. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it's almost like a set of core values that, you know, for them to know that one of their core values is perhaps um, as a member of a family, you know, to, to um, you know, appreciate the love within that family, to feel, you know, not all children have those kinds of families, but, you know, sometimes we need to strip back all I call the frippery, the, the froth, and say, you know, if we're going to emerge from this pandemic, what have been the most important things? And it will be family, community, friends, loved ones, fresh air. And they've all been sort of um, locked down, haven't they? That's That's been the issue. And yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we can dream on, can't we? <laughs> Um, it's really nice to hear you talking about these things though because this is what we've lost and this is why our reaction to the pandemic has been as it has been because we'd already kind of lost our appreciation for all these things but so I mean, we really... Val, you are so eloquent in yeah. how you put it together and so logical it's wonderful i know I could listen well, to Well, that's very nice of you, because I'm, <laughs> I'm not sitting with any notes in front of me. I mean, at some point, I probably would like to share those criteria that I've already written, which I think... Um, because I do want to say to the home-educated 
home educating community, you can, you can do it well. Yeah. And you do not have to, you know, the worst forms of home education I see is where, oh, this is the history book, he does five pages a day. This is the geography <laughs> book, he does oh, perhaps four pages of that a day. Yeah. And I just think, you know what, you're just trying to replicate something that is a failed system anyway. Yeah. yeah. I think as well, you know, what we all did was remote learning. It wasn't home education. No. Home education is being able to go to a museum or go and see a play that's relevant to what you're you're doing looking at mm -hmm. um and of course all those things were closed um so you know that none of us have properly experienced although we perhaps mostly experienced the tensions of um, yes homeschooling. yeah the worst bits of it um, yeah and i guess i want to, i want to say to every parent and every teacher We've had our victories. We've had, we've been, you know, all three of us have been parents. We know the, the joy of that. We've all had uh, relationships within, within which we've had our children. We've had successful jobs. We've, we've had multiple opportunities by the time we get to our age to identify as happy and successful. And I want to say, it's their turn now yeah. because they've had a sizable, they've had a sizable chunk of their life um, you know, sort of stripped away, yeah. and those opportunities. What about the teenagers at the start of the pandemic who might have had their first love? They haven't been able to do that. They haven't been able to flirt. They haven't been able to, you know, innocently date one another. You know, and for my children in school, that just meant you stood next to them at playtime. Well, <laughs> they haven't been able to do that. You know, know, they haven't been able and to do And then they go back to school, and they go back to school, and everyone's wearing these fucking masks on their faces. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. I'm with it's you. Like, I mean, how do you, how do you communicate? You can. That you rather like it's, that. How can you? you, how do you I rather like you. Uh, how, you. I mean, it's it's just ridiculous. So I want to say it's their turn. Good. It's, how can you decide if you're attracted to somebody if they're half your face? Yeah, I mean, a pair of eyes and a hairdo above the mask is all pretty much ubiquitous. It right? makes me so <laughs> sad. I can't yeah. even tell you. And yeah. it, like. I just the the mask thing in Scotland. I don't. I can't remember what's happening in England now. But kids here are still wearing masks. The secondary school kids all day, and I just think that is absolutely an abomination. What we've done to our kids. Yeah. Well. And let's hope they. F I mean, let's hope they feel ashamed if they're insisting on it. Do the research. Do the research on all the studies. You I mean, as a non-scientist, I've done that. And there's asymptomatic transmission is Yeah, but negligible. also masks don't do anything. And, you know, the spy-bee scientists who insisted that it became mandatory have said themselves it was a behaviour control tool. Well, what are we doing it for yes, then? of course. Let's just stop it right now. Well, you like, know, I think anybody yeah. who's got specs and has wearing a mask can tell you yeah stuff gets through that mask you know it's all coming out the top yes. well, it's still the same air it's just it, it and you makes, can't see as well i would like to say to anybody and I, listen i i assure anybody who feels offended by this i would say this to you if you were my best friend and i was sitting across the table from you take it off you're not saving anybody. Well, and I, and I can't um, do the science. 
I can't do the science on this, but what I'm persuaded by the, and if, again, please do your own research, everyone. It comes with a bit of a health warning. It, I, this is what I've, so, yeah, you know, the model up. of learning and understanding I've got is that somebody's, somebody who does know this stuff has told me, I'm now putting it in my own words and saying masks were never designed to trap viral particles. No, bacterial. No. So, you know, what, why bother with But they do trap bacteria, or at least some of them, and you've got a really lovely growth medium there yeah. for the children well, who've yeah. got it over their mouths. Oh, yeah, they trap your bacteria nicely, and then your bacteria multiply on the mask, and then you breathe them back in. I mean, it literally could not be more stupid a practice. And... and Everybody's like doing the it. The next logical step is that if you do contract COVID and you've been rebreathing bacteria, you can add a bacterial infection into the mix with COVID. You probably don't want that. No. You know? I mean, it really, no. it really, so simple, basic. It's absolutely, completely absurd. I can't even, I can't, it's making me increasingly angry. It's been going on so well, long now. Well, you know, yeah, my flight over to Costa Rica, well, actually, I flew to Mexico from London. It was an 11-and-a-half-hour flight, and there was a woman, a young woman, but she was obviously so scared that she had, she had two masks on, and one was one of those structured ones that really fit closely all the way around the face and into the chin. You know, not the ones that are floppy, mm -hmm. but the really tight one. But then she had one over the uh, top of that, they did not come off the whole flight, which meant she didn't eat or drink the whole time. Oh dear. How is that? How is that healthy? It's not healthy, especially not on healthy. a flight. And the other <laughs> thing is, I mean, you were talking about the effect of fear on learning, but actually the effect of fear on your immune system, it drags you down, it yeah. lowers your immune system. It's not a good yeah. It's not a good idea. No, it's really not. No, no, um, no. Val, just because it's getting a bit late here, you've said earlier on you were going to tell us how this all got you to Costa Rica, and we've not heard that yet. <laughs> oh, right, okay. So well, it was it was your friend of mine and fellow heart member, just very yeah. briefly, Liz, who mm -hmm. put a message out saying... Um, some Canadian doctors, who, who, uh, Canadian doctors speak out on a video. They wanted to do another one, and it was about the COVID harms for children. Uh -huh. And if you're interested, to ca contact Karen McKenna, who was chairing this group. So I contacted Karen, found out that we had a connection because of Vancouver Island, mm -hmm. and then we worked on that project. There was a, a video produced, and I summarised some of this uh, things I've said in this podcast on that. Yeah. Um, video which I've sent you, Christine, so I'll you can always the, link people. I'll put the link in the show notes. Yep. Yeah, and it goes wider than just um, master learning. It's about children in general. Um, I contributed the research to the extracurricular bit, but it wasn't me that delivered that. But I did deliver the master learning bit. You'll be able to see that. And then um, we just got into the habit of every Tuesday. Um, this group, it was people from Sweden, people from America, people from Canada, both sides of Canada, there was me, um, talking about this and what we can do about it. And Karen and I continued. So every Tuesday between 7 and 8, we were in each other's living rooms by the virtues of technology. And then, and then she left Canada to go to her bolt hole 
stroke holiday home in Costa Rica. She'd, she'd done it once in this year and then she'd gone back. And then this time she came because she felt very restrictive with the Canadian um, authorities and what they were doing. So she and her partner and son came here. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and you know, she, I, I can't, it was, I don't even think this was booked until about, I don't know, three weeks ago, but oh. then it was like, well, why don't you come? And I thought, yeah, I would like to do that. And it has been a real delight. Oh, well, I have to say, we're just a little bit envious. Yes. Yeah, we, we've not had just anything. a little bit. Yeah, we've not had anything as it well, you... come out of our COVID. Um, well, this is available to you. Oh, good. I can talk you through everything you need to do, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of getting here, getting back. And I happen to know that, you know, this is going to be, a, you know, um, a going concern for Karen. Oh, um, isn't it? We spoke go. about this, our last podcast with the wonderful Emma Kenny. We spoke about this, about how connections that we have made... I don't know what to call us as a group. Skeptics is the go-to term. I'm not sure that quite works. Awake, not woke. Uh, yeah, but the connections that Critical we've made... Critical thinkers. The connections that we've made are really powerful. Yes, yes. And I've met... Yeah, they, they are. I've met you once at the protest. I was telling Sylvia yes. before we started about... Um, getting lifted over a fence by a very strong chap who's a friend of ours <laughs> in Hyde yes, Park. Yes, now... <laughs> and, I mean, neither of us are insubstantial women. It was a real face. <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, it was very good, very impressive. And, um, yeah, but we've just made such great connections and it's it's quite magical, really, how instant the connection is. You know, I was just speaking at the weekend there to a chap who I've contacted through Twitter and he's emailed me through the Inform Scotland group and we just started chatting. I have absolutely no idea who this chap is. He knows a wee bit about who I am, but it's just like instant. You're instantly friends. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's that. Well, yes. It's just a reassurance of that inner moral fiber yes that and the fact that you're on the same same wavelength that just makes life so easy i know it's well the conversation you know you're, you're not worried about introducing something which is going to you know sort of sink like a lead balloon because in fact what i've noticed and of course i'm as guilty as anybody in terms of why use 10 words when 100 will do is that we're all so excited about you know what we believe and we're passionate about that that actually conversation is never dull is it you, no. you, you know there's never awkward silences and what i have been noticing is um, again we spoke about this a bit with emma like it's instantly i well i've kind of been relearning the skill but i feel like with a slot there's almost you can almost talk about anything freely and openly and know that you're not going to be misunderstood so you can say things which might be politically incorrect dare i say it and the person that you're speaking to is not going to is is going to take what you're saying in good faith and think well i know you're a nice person you're a good person i'm interested to hear what you think about this 
Yeah. And if our opinions yes. diverge on a matter, it doesn't, it's not important. And sometimes you learn something. Yeah. But it's actually, yes. it's actually a measure of how screwed up our society has become that we seem to be unable to do this now. Like, critical thinkers need critical Well, we can't do it with the, we can't do it with the others. We can't do it, we can't do it with the, the group that are, you know, following um, the rules and regulations. But I think what you've just identified is quite interesting, Christine, because maybe the fact that we're not taking things at face value means that we're open to other perspectives also means that that is more generic in our makeup so that when someone's talking to us and we instantly think, oh, I've not thought about that, we don't dismiss it. Yeah. yeah, but I think I've oh, got out. I, I think I've been out of the habit of that though, because I think in the last few years I did start to dismiss things that I didn't agree with, and I'm not actually very. I'm not proud of that at all. In fact, I find it quite shameful now when I look back on it. Some of the things that I rejected out of hand because, you know, I thought that I didn't agree with them instead of just asking. Well, explain to me why you think that. You know. Let's yeah. Well, I definitely heavily identified as a left liberal. I no longer think it's about left and right. I, you know, it's it's not a no. it's not a political ideological issue for me any longer. No. Yeah. And there's that. I know that. I know from some of the things that you've told me um, about experiences that you've had with people that. They just automatically, it's incredible how often people will automatically say to you, like, if, for example, you're not in favour of coronavirus restrictions, you, they'll be like, oh, so you just want people to die of COVID then? It's like, of course. Yes, that's, it's just the quality, of, the quality of debate. <laughs> it's like, the no. quality of debate. I mean, these are people telling me this who have known me for nearly 30 years. Yeah, yeah, and it's like they forget. No, of course they know. Yeah. They, they forget everything that they know about you because what you're saying is jarring with them and it's easier just to assume and like throw an insult at you than actually engage with what you're saying. And that really is very, very sad that that's where we've got to as a society. But I don't want to be around it anymore. I don't want to be around that kind of thinking. Um, no. Well, it's even getting worse, isn't it? I mustn't keep you, ladies, but... Um, um, it, I think it's almost so. There's the ones who are like that, who you know, the judgment comes out. There's the ones who just steer around it, you know, who think, oh, you know, yes, she's going to be there, so we'll talk about everything but, um, <laughs> and, and you know, and, and don't don't rattle a cage or whatever. Let's and ignore then, the elephant. <laughs> yeah, and then there's the ones who do agree with a lot of what you say, but aren't doing anything. And I'm trying to work out which ones I feel most comfortable with. Yeah, there, there is a lot of people that agree um, and then that feel that just for an easy life, they don't want to rock the boat. I know, I agree with you, but could you just shut up about this now? It's like, um... I agree with you, but I'll just wear masks because I don't want challenged oh. on it or I, I don't want, Yeah. you know... But also, being a left liberal, I'm turning up, still campaigning for the vulnerable, the children, the um, the fact that 250,000 businesses have gone down, they've mostly been the, the economically vulnerable people who have had to bear that.
Now, my left liberal friends and also, you know, my body, my choice, my generation did all of that in the 90s with respect to um, pregnancy and the abortion law and so on. So I actually haven't changed. And I'm almost like the guilty conscience of those who no longer want to be associated with what I thought. You know, my body, my choice, that's, that's a core value, isn't it? Didn't we, didn't we chart that in the 90s? And I don't think and core before. values have caveats, do they? And well, and before, and before, of course. So, so you know, there's a bit of me that sometimes feels I turn up at the parties and I'm the guilty conscience that they have because they no longer, um, you know, they've, the government's been, I don't blame them, the government has been completely successful in making people identify with their most basic self-centred needs. So they no longer have time to worry about the healthcare workers, um, who have, you know, the care workers particularly, who are the most oppressed, the most lowly paid, the most insecure jobs, the most difficult jobs, the ones that they've... Now, my left liberal friends would normally, through the trade union movement and politically, be standing up for that then, but they're not. No. They're not. Now, how can you not? It's an interesting thing, that the fear... It seems to almost have made people much more self-centered, you know. The, the, I think so. And it's it's very interesting how the, it's affected people. The other thing is that it's not just the fear, it's being locked up. And actually, I think it was on Heart, one of the psychologists did a seminar about this about the effect that solitary confinement has on people. Now, obviously, we weren't all in solitary confinement, although a lot of people were. But um, she said it's sort of like low-level solitary confinement. And what solitary confinement does to people is it makes them unable to think about anybody except themselves because they're inside themselves too much and they're not being forced to accommodate other people. And so what happens is you turn in on yourself all the time. And I think you can actually see that happening to people. On a grand scale. Well, I, I certainly can with the cohort. Yeah. You know, I'm think, I've lived in the same village for 30 years and they've all brought up our children, you know, so we're all sort of contemporaries with, with those sort of similarities. And certainly, you know, we're all in a position where we've, we don't have mortgages, we don't have small children, we're not self-employed trying to put bread on the table, we're not scratching a living, we're not trying to hold on to that. And yet we still expect 67 million people to close down to keep me safe. Where did that come from? Yeah. 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 Yeah, because... Mm. And it, but um, it was really interesting what that... I, can't, I actually... I don't think it was her. I can't remember where... But I was at this seminar and it also talked about how um, isolation makes you paranoid and it makes you think that people around you are worse than they are and all this. It was very, very interesting. And I certainly, it was certainly, I felt like I could see that happening to people. And it wasn't yeah. happening to me because I was not following lockdown rules in January and February, although... I did follow them to a certain extent because you couldn't not. But I was interacting with other people and I could feel myself getting better because I could, I was able to identify that the same thing had been happening to me. Um, yes, that is interesting, isn't it? 
Yeah. I um, I, I tend, I must, I'm really sorry. I mean, I feel like we could just talk all night, but you, we you could must talk have, all you, night. You've got to get up tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, but we won't. <laughs> but um, I did attend, um, I did attend this um convention, and it was mostly about um being left left liberal, if you like, and um, and there was a really interesting woman who looked at the psychology of the ones who are following the rules. And she suggested that they were actually, you know, when she looked, I mean, I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to say it the way she said it, but uh, because it's not my specialist field, but she was suggesting that they're actually jealous of us. There's envy because at some level they would like to be as, um, not as scared of, of COVID as they are, but also more free thinking to question. They would like to, but their, their own fear has imprisoned them. That was a really interesting. I've not thought about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's also the kind of school of thought, isn't there, that we kind of hold a mirror up to these people, and so they know so much of what they're doing is ludicrous, and so they don't like then seeing somebody who's gone against it mm. because mm. you know it shows it shines a mirror on them. Yes, yes. So, yeah. So, and if they start to sort of slightly think, oh, yes, it is a bit irrational. Why is it that I can take my mask off when I'm sitting down in a restaurant, but I've got to walk the 10 feet to the door by putting my mask on? These, you know, these are usually rational people. So at some level, it must be making them feel very uncomfortable, you know, having to defy the rationality of that. Yeah. Yeah. You perhaps would like to um, have this woman that I'm talking about with the psychology of the, you know, I'd be very happy to pass on her details to you oh, yeah. um, with her permission. She, I think she'd make a really good podcast for you. Well, we do enjoy having a psychologist. Yes, on the we've, show. Had we've had a lot of psychologists. And they're always, it's very interesting though, because they all are very different. Yeah, like they all they're come different at people. It from slightly different <laughs> angles. Yeah, they have. Yeah. And their specialisms sure. have all been a little bit different. And They've all been fascinating. And actually, I've got a psychologist queued up. Well, he's a, a psychoanalyst. Okay. But yeah. the more the oh, merrier. Right. Yeah. The more the merrier. Um, well, perhaps, perhaps save her for 2022, because I'm sure we'll still be having to do this. Oh, gosh. No, we'll, we'll <laughs> definitely speak to her in 2021. Um, and also, we want to speak to this friend, Karen, who's got a house in Costa Rica. <laughs> oh, yes. That, I should say Karen. I mean, she's still not returned, so I know. I don't, I'm getting um, a little bit worried now. I'm probably going to have to contact the Costa Rican police soon. Oh, but um, yes. um, Karen is the chair of the World Doctors um, Alliance. She's also chair of the World Health Council. And, oh, there was a third thing. Um, oh, oh, I've forgotten. Well, she she chaired the small group that I was part of as well. And oh, I know she's a colleague of Tess Laurie. She oh, yes. she was the project manager for World Ivermectin Day. Oh, well, she's absolutely an, a, a complete hero. This woman, we definitely need. Yes, yes she, we need and Dr. she's now Karen. got a. T- I've brought her over a together T-shirt, so she's a walking QR code in the remote <laughs> rainforest of Costa Rica, and she's delighted. Oh, that's great. Well, just all okay, these okay. people that we've um, been so privileged to be connected to, and you, of course, are one of them, Val. Um, thank you well, so much. Well, my absolute much. pleasure. Thank you so much. My yeah, pleasure. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of your time in Costa Rica. 
It just yes, sounds I will. heaven. I'm I sorry will. we weren't able to arrange better sound so that our listeners could hear the tropical birds yeah, singing. Was, I know, not to worry. And not the, to worry. Um, the sea, because yeah. it sounded magnificent. Well, you could have also, if we'd, if we'd had visuals, you'd have seen the hummingbirds oh. in the background. <sighs> You'll just have to come. We just have to come. Great. <laughs> yeah. Party All right. Costa Rica. Take care, both. Listen, okay. thank you so much for giving us your time when you're on holiday. That's extra specially generous. No, you're welcome. Take care. Okay. okay. Take care. Bye, Val. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. This might be the last podcast of the year. Thank you for being with us and please stay with us in 2022. Happy New Year.